0: peace love and light this is the 12th path and present podcast which means we have been doing a podcast a month for one year so happy birthday to the podcast and thank you all for tuning in it's been a beautiful ride and it's been overwhelming to see uh, all the places that people are tuning in from all around the world all the love and it's been great we've had some amazing guests And we hope to continue to spread this uh, love and light through this medium. We have some really cool episodes coming up soon. I look forward to sharing those with you. Many people have said that some of the conversations in this podcast have been transformative or changed their life or been greatly beneficial, changed the way they see things. And that's really what it's all about. I started this podcast because as an artist, I have the ability to travel all over the world, meet with amazing people, artists, activists, scholars, spiritual teachers, you name it. People doing really beautiful things. And unfortunately, when I turned on the news or even most social media, I was just seeing a lot of negative things. And I was like, why is nobody highlighting some of the good things? So. I had these conversations with these people that really changed me and transformed me and opened me and made me look at the world totally differently. And I would then come home and be like, man, I wish I could share those conversations with the people that I love. And then I realized, well, I guess I can. So that's how Path and Present was born. And it's really been organic and raw. It's not heavily edited. It's just a long form, honest, sincere conversation. And the whole The idea is like a mic just happens to be on, but we're having real conversations. So that's the idea. And if you enjoyed it or benefited from it, um, then alhamdulillah, we've served our purpose. So we would like to do the podcast even more consistently, more than once a month if possible. And to do that, um, there's a few costs involved an editor um, we want to build a website and all these things like that, as well as just taking the time to record it, get someone in the room, do all those things. So if you have benefited from the podcast or support it or like it or enjoy it in any way, you can now support it through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool site, which allows people to support content creators and, um, and basically, you can give as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want. And that really just helps us cover our overhead costs. And it also gives us the ability to devote more time to the podcast. So if everybody who listens and enjoys the podcast would could give one a month, uh, $1 a month, it would be way more than we need. So anyway, if you have the... If you're balling, you know what I mean? You got extra bread, then uh, break us off a few crumbs and we will continue to bring you Path and Present podcast. And if you are totally broke and you have no dollar to give and you're like, man, everybody keeps trying to take my money. I don't have money. um, Then we are going to pray for you that you get expanded abundance coming your way soon. But the best way... That I found to increase that abundance is to pray for others. So keep us in your prayers as well. So I don't want to be too verbose, but if you want to check that out, you can find the link to our Patreon page by, I'm sure if you just go to Patreon and search Path and Present Podcast, you'll find it. Or you can go to SoundCloud.com slash Path and Present, our SoundCloud page, and you'll see a link there. So check it out. It's pretty cool. There's some... Kind of gifts or bonuses you get if you give a certain amount. So check that out. Uh, and that will allow us to continue to do Path and Present and really hopefully in the coming year to actually um, start doing it more frequently. We would really like to increase the frequency. Increase the frequency. Yes. So this new podcast that you're about to hear is with Rory Dixon. He wrote an amazing book called Living Sufism in North America Between Tradition and Transformation. I'm not going to say too much about it because we get into the details of the book and we actually talk for about two hours. So enjoy. One love. I guess your book is, for for me, the way I look at it is it's separated into two parts. Um, One is like setting the stage. That's right, yeah. And, And you're kind of going into the history And it's two histories. It's the history Mm -hmm. of Sufism itself, which is actually a shorter section. You're kind of like, you know. And then the longer section is actually a history of esoteric movements in the West. Right. Starting quite early. And so that's the first half. And then the second half is basically like a really interesting way to approach it is that you like did field work and you went and you talked to... Uh, a group of Sufi teachers, or a diverse range of Sufi teachers, and ask right. them a series of questions.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So, why did you structure it like that? Why, why is it like two parts? It,
1: it's a great question. I mean, the, the, and I think there's
0: there's a few
1: different answers. I mean, one of them is that the ver- the, the two parts of the book actually reflect the two sorts of um, academic training that I underwent, you might say. So I did a, a undergraduate degree in, in history and to this day have a, a deep love of history. I love reading history. I, I enjoy writing history. Um, it, it's something that I, I pretty naturally gravitate toward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was in graduate school, um, the, the program that I was a part of had an emphasis more on... Um, Ethnography, uh, field work—you know, going out and and meeting people, interviewing people, spending time with people, and really uh, allowing yourself and your your perspectives to be transformed by encounter.
0: Mm.
1: You know, so getting off of the armchair and and really getting out there. And so, in some ways, the book reflects both of those trainings. You know, it, it it's got my love of history in it, and it's also got this um, very cool experience I had in graduate school learning to do fieldwork and, and coming to appreciate its power. Um, so I, I think that's partly where that comes from. Um, the, the other thing that I would say is, I think history is really necessary. You know I think we need to contextualize the present because so much of the present is, is echoes and reverberations of the past. And if we don't appreciate that, we have such a hard time understanding why things uh, are the way they are in the present. And I, I think that can lead to a lot of problems. So specifically with this, you know, questions like, for instance, Sufism and Islam, you know, there's such an ahistorical sense that so many Muslims and non-Muslims have about this question. You know, there's a sense of, well, if the Muslims in in my area haven't really been into Sufism for the past 80 years, then Sufism has never been a part of Islam. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you look historically, you might go, yeah, we'll go back two centuries and the Muslims in your area were almost entirely what we might now call today uh, Sufi-oriented, even though they may not have thought of themselves as particularly Sufi, their understanding of Islam would have just seemingly integrated elements uh, that we now call Sufism in, into their spiritual life. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example of where I think, you know, history is really important. And so when I did these these interviews and we're, we're, was meeting people and, and talking about ad- adapting Sufism or changes in Sufism or the relationship between Sufism and Islam, I really felt it was important for people to have a pretty solid background um, you know, historically to these, these contemporary debates so that they could be put in, uh, in context.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think, um, you know, so many of my teachers, they always said, like, it's important to have historical consciousness and mm. really understand mm-hmm. where we stand and where we are in the moment. And I've reflected on that a lot, especially traveling mm-hmm. teaches you this is it like so many people and so much of us um we're just products of momentum we're products of our yes. environment and we inherited exactly. a worldview and we inherited all these things and unless you're somehow transported out of that it's hard to see yeah. you know it's, and like, it's like a fish doesn't know there's such thing as water that's it's right. just swimming in water and then there's those few fish that jump out of the water and then he wait and then he comes down and <laughs> then he's like oh there's water <laughs> You know, but you have to be taken out to know that. And, you know, and and yeah, studying and reading history is another means than travel, because you can get transported to distant lands and distant places. I think (laughs) that's right. So I was really fascinated. I think maybe even like the highlight of the book for me was the way that you traced the history of Western esoteric movements, because, you know... I learned a lot. I mean, I always reflected on the more the more recent the '60s and '70s counterculture. Maybe a little bit earlier, like the transcendentalists in America. But I always reflected right. about how you know the phenomenon of the fact that there's a yoga studio on every corner, and that yeah. Rumi is the number one selling poet in America, and that they're teaching transcendental meditation in the boardroom and in the prisons. It's all one phenomena. It's all related. It's all this yes. counterculture Americana, sixties and seventies, turning east for spirituality, questioning institutions of the previous generations, why things are the way they are, and right. you know, we kind of coming on the heels of that. That's kind of my parents' generation. I, I assume your parents' generation too. So we kind yeah. of inherit that and you know a lot of people like you say they don't really understand but there was places and people and mo- movements and dates and there's a lot of really interesting things that opened it up and so you highlighted that really well but you even brought it back to like the medieval period and the early you know christianity and like hermeticism and all that stuff so i was hoping maybe you could just summarize a little bit of like what you were you know the movements you talked about and how that played out and set the stage, really, for Sufism to come to the West.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, um, I have to say, in, in terms of writing the book, um, that chapter on, uh, you know, the genesis of, of Sufism in the, in the West, and it's uh, the origins of that relationship going all the way back to the Renaissance and, and medieval periods. Um, that, that aspect of the book was one where I probably learned the most in, in writing the book. You know, I mean, some of the other parts of the book I, I had spent time, you know, let's say the history of Sufism within um, the Islamic tradition more broadly, you know, that's something that I'd spent time and years you know, reading and learning about. But it was really in, in the process of, of doing this project and writing this book that I realized I, if I was going to write about uh, Sufism in the West, Sufism in North America, that I needed to really go as far back as I could to look at the roots of that relationship. And so there, there was actually a lot of learning for me in that. Um, and, and like yourself, to be honest, I, I was also kind of surprised by, by what I found and was really fascinated by it. Um, in, in part because I, I think there is such a kind of cool, if, if subtle interweaving of, of Sufi, uh, Islamic and, and Western traditions. So, you know, to, to put it sort of simply, I mean, you get this interesting um, confluence, we might say, of um, some elements of of Sufi thought with Western esoteric traditions. And that confluence seems to really meet in the Renaissance period, um, particularly in in Florence, where there's this influx of of texts, uh, Greek texts coming into Florence. And there is this project of, of translating these texts into Latin. And these texts, uh, hermetic texts, Neoplatonic texts, um, really inspired, I mean, really, they, were, they inspired a, a huge part of the, the thought and culture of the Renaissance. Um, but another piece of this puzzle was um, Ramon Lal, mm-hmm. who came even earlier, and was somebody who, interestingly enough, I mean, he got into Islamic and Sufi traditions largely as a missionary. You know, he, he was uh, living in the um, Iberian Peninsula, you know, uh, present-day Spain, and uh, in, a, in a part of the country that had been recently um, reconquered from from the Muslims. And so he was uh, himself somebody who, who had a sort of born-again experience and became a very devout Christian, but he spent a lot of time uh, studying Islamic texts, and in particular, from what we can tell, Sufi texts on things like the 99 Names of God. And so interestingly enough, he, he wrote a, a number of works um, on, on these subjects in part to try to basically to engage in polemics. I mean, to try to convert Muslims and say, look, we have traditions like this, too, in, in Christianity. But what, what's so interesting about it, as many scholars have noted, is, you know, in his efforts to become a Christian missionary, to Christianize Muslims, he himself became sort of Islamicized in a way. And this Which was is, in
0: Spain in like, was it the 1200s?
1: Yeah, that's like, I think in the, yeah, if you go back to the 12th century, basically. So, yeah,
0: Because he was there, he was, uh, you know, like, he was in the newly reconquered, you know, lands that were recently right. taken from the Muslims. So there was still, it was still like an Arabic speaking community and all that stuff. That's
1: right, yeah. So, I mean, he, he was really kind of swimming in, in that uh, culture. Um, but I mean, what, what's kind of cool about that is, uh, you, you see, uh, influences of Lowell that really percolate for a while in, in Europe. Um, but really, uh, come to light, I think in, in the Renaissance with people who we now look to as the founders of what is called the Western esoteric tradition. Mm-hmm. So people like, uh, Pacino and, uh, Pico della Mirandola, um, you know they were living in the in the 15th century in in Florence and and were engaged in these projects of, of translation uh, and were really into things like Neoplatonicism, uh, Hermeticism, Kabbalah, and and also uh, Lull's work. And so you know I think we, we see this kind of Sufi influence coming through Lull um, onto people like uh, Piccino and Mirandola. And what's so interesting about that is. Cicino and, and uh, Pico della Mirandola uh, and and some others, uh, writing in Florence at the time, really uh, plant a lot of seeds, a lot of seeds, uh, intellectual, spiritual, that really take time to gestate and and uh, sprout forth. And one of the ideas that comes out of that period is the uh, perennial philosophy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know the idea of a perennial philosophy, I think, is probably older and, and found throughout the world in various forms, but a particular understanding of it really takes shape then, that there is this sort of one underlying truth to the world's various religions and and philosophies. And, and I think what's so neat about that is, is that idea, along with a few others, really then shapes the esoteric mystical revival of the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it is that revival that, uh, Sufism, uh, as a living tradition, first interacts with. Sure. Right? So we've got uh, Hazrat Inayat Khan uh, coming over from uh, India to uh, North America and eventually and Europe as well, eventually Europe as well. And he is dealing with people who are involved with things like the Theosophical Society, um, Transcendentalism, um, and really those movements— are Building upon the foundation laid by people like Ficino and uh, Pico della Mirandola. And again, that foundation was itself influenced by Lull, who was influenced by uh, Sufi literature and ideas. So you get this kind of very interesting confluence where the, the first sort of pouring of, of Sufism into a Western cup, we might say, is pouring it into a cup that has, in part, in a very subtle but but real way, been shaped by Sufism.
0: So. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, Lullism, right? I mean, there was like a <laughs> whole movement. At first, he was uh, looked down upon by the the Pope, right? Because maybe he had a little too much Muslim influence or something like that. But then eventually, he became very popular. It took a few hundred years for Lowell's work, right? Yeah, that was kind of in reading the book. That part was really amazing to me because I'd never heard of this individual, and yeah, it had this really ironic. I mean, he basically wrote a book based on the ninety nine names, but it was like he had to add one. Right? It was the the hundred something. <laughs> right. There's the polemics, I think. Right? I right. mean, yeah, Muslims have ninety nine. I will have hundred. But yeah, That's no. What... I mean, it's it's really fascinating, and so yeah, you kind of bring us up. Um, the fact that the transcendentalists are reading and loving uh, Sufi poetry, particularly Persian Sufi poetry, I think that's a story that people are starting to talk about more, but it's really important. I mean, right. Emerson is is seen as like the America's great poet, you know, and, you know, well, I mean, or philosopher, and, and Whitman well, okay. as the great great poet, and, you know, they are deeply, deeply affected by Sufi poetry. Right. And Sufi right. thought in general. Um, so you mentioned Hazrat and Nayar Khan, and one thing that I really love, like when I was reading it and you framed it around the two individuals that kind of spark, you could say, in the early 20th century, this um, this kind of Sufism in the West, the fact that you framed it around these two individuals, I felt like that was really brilliant, Inaid Khan and Rene Gagnon, because they really represent in, in, in many ways, like, the two ends of the spectrum on some level, but there's this overlap and this really more overlap than I even knew as far as, like, you know, the theosophical piece and reacting to it or trying to incorporate it. That's right. Yeah. So I just, if you could, for those that aren't necessarily familiar with that history, if you could kind of summarize the life and the work of each of those individuals, because the way you did it in the book was beautiful and it kind of helps frame the, the different spectrum of Sufism in North America.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, I think those two figures for me, I, I wanted to focus on one because I think they do represent uh, two of the first teachers uh, of, of Sufism, we might say, even though Rene Guenon would have not necessarily been um, somebody who was initiating Westerners into Sufism, but he himself was initiated into a Sufi order and, and lived his life as a devout uh, Sufi Muslim. And uh, his writings have been hugely influential. Um, and then uh, Hazrat Enia Khan uh, really, I think, was the first um, Sufi teacher to uh, come to North America in particular and, and begin initiating people into the path as, as a living tradition. Whereas prior to that, you have, as you described, more of a literary influence from, from Persian Sufism on the people like uh, Emerson and, and others. So what I find so fascinating about these two figures uh, is, is that they they present very different sorts of sufism and i and I think they present two very different sorts of sufism that that creates a sort of tension a creative tension I think between uh, affiliating Sufism quite closely with adherence to Islamic law, sharia uh, and uh, the five pillars of the faith, the basic practices, and an approach to Sufism that says it's more of a universal spiritual essence that can be practiced in a whole variety of forms that doesn't necessarily need to be tied to Islamic practice and law and identity. And what's so interesting about this is that Hazrat Inayat Khan is the one who is teaching uh, a more universal understanding of Sufism, and yet he himself is a Muslim coming from a traditionally Muslim context, a Muslim community in India, whereas Rene Ganon becomes somebody who uh, believes quite strongly that, that Sufism can only legitimately be practiced within the boundaries of Islamic identity and faith and practice. And yet he is a convert in a sense. Um, you know, he's a, a French you know, scholar and a practitioner who adopts Sufism as his path. So a very interesting contrast between those two figures. But um, to try to, I guess, sum up each of their lives uh, briefly, René Guénon was somebody who uh, was uh, a student in Paris at the turn of the 20th century and got really into the, the underground esoteric scene there, which was a very rich scene. I mean really, there were a lot of, of esoteric movements, and he was really drawn to them, and uh, including things like the Theosophical Society, um, Masonic orders. Uh, And he gets involved in these, but uh, really looking for authentic initiation. I mean, I think that's really important to keep in mind that for people like Ganon, and and his perspective would would influence the the traditionalist movement as a whole. But Ganon is really interested in authentic initiation. He believes that if you do not have an authentic initiation, that you will not be able to access the fruits of the spiritual life. And so in a way, he's questing. He's going on this, this quest to find uh, an authentic initiation. And so he experiments with various Western esoteric traditions, um, again, like the Theosophical Society and masonry. And although he finds some things that he likes, certainly the Theosophical Society perpetuates uh, the, the ideal of a perennial philosophy that, again, we can see going back to the Renaissance. Um, but And he really likes that. I mean, I think Gwinnon is really struck by this idea that there is, there is one primordial Original truth that is then sort of fragmented in history, uh, and, and in a sense, this this project of trying to recover that, of trying to get back to this primordial, pure, holistic truth, um, and so he he likes that from the the teachings, but there's a lot that he doesn't like, and I think at some point overall, these these Western esoteric and and uh, groups in in Paris leave a bad taste in his mouth, and he really is, is looking for something else. And so he ends up, um, studying at some, uh, more traditional Catholic institutes in, in France. And it's there, I think that he starts to encounter this, this sense of the importance of tradition, that if you want to have true, uh, holistic, balanced, integral spiritual wisdom and knowledge, that this is only accessible within a tradition because a tradition is something that has been built up over time by wise realized people and it packs within it all of the materials that you need for your journey which otherwise you either won't make it or you'll end up going off course right so i think there's that general sense that tradition um really offers a lot and in fact is is necessary for uh, completing the spiritual path so i think then you get this combination in in guanon of of this uh, perennialism, this understanding that there's this one truth that underlies all the world's various religions and philosophies, um, but that if one is going to access this truth, this original truth, one has to do it through a coherent tradition. Mm-hmm. And so this is really important. Gwenan doesn't think that everyone has to become a Muslim or everyone has to become a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu, but he thinks you do have to be one of them. Mm-hmm you know, you do have to have uh, a tradition that you adhere to quite closely. And through that tradition, uh, and through practicing it in an integral way, one is able to access the esoteric truth at the heart of this tradition, which itself is uh, an embodiment of this primordial, this original truth. So I, I think that uh, hopefully is a summary of, of Gnan's uh, perspective. Um, so I think you can see within that, that when he becomes a Muslim, uh, he believes that that's necessary for him to access the the uh, original pure truth at the heart of the religion that he would affiliate with Sufism.
0: Right. So, yeah, you know, Guignon is looking for this lost core, this lost yes essence, this lost esoteric wisdom, which is yes. this primordial wisdom, and his early writings are about the Vedanta and Taoism particularly and you know it's fascinating he actually goes to Egypt you know and he intends to only go for a few months to gather some texts on Sufism to translate for some publication in France and he just ends up never leaving that's right Yeah. and living the life of a pious Muslim you know uh, marrying a local woman uh, taking a Sufi sheikh In Cairo, and you know, just living a very humble existence. uh, That's right. As like a traditional Egyptian man, basically. But at the same time, he was still writing uh, about the, the kind of perennial philosophy, and he was still writing about other traditions. Is that true? Like when he was in Cairo, he was still corresponding and writing for journals in the West and things like that.
1: It, it's it's a very it's a very good point to bring up because to me this is one of the most fascinating elements of guenon and of I think the the what we might call traditionalism, which is cap- capital T kind of the, the movement that's named after him and then his um, his his colleague uh, Pujav Shuan, who um, would really kind of take over leadership of of this movement. But uh, starting with Guinan, I mean, you see this really fascinating confluence of as you described. An outwardly very orthodox traditional Muslim life. I mean, at some point, he would have just been totally indistinguishable from, I think, any pious Egyptian, you know, going to the mosque regularly, uh, having a family, and living his life out quietly. Um, That's definitely the case. Now, interestingly enough, what what separates him from um, many others in that context was that, yes, he still was interested in other traditions, and he believed that in particular Vedanta, uh, the The philosophy within hinduism sort of a non dual philosophy within Hinduism that basically says Atman the soul is Brahman is the absolute that that the self uh, the you know the, the kernel of the soul is itself the the absolute that there is no duality between them uh, for him that expression of metaphysical truth was the most explicit expression of this truth among the various religions mm-hmm. so In a sense, he understood or or read Sufism through the lens of Vedanta, Mm. which is a kind of very interesting uh, mixture there. Now, that's not to say that there isn't, in fact, um, similar traditions. uh, You know, the the traditions of Ibn al-Arabi and uh, his school of thought, in some cases, certainly do show some uh, similarities and and overlap Mm -hmm. with, with Vedantic traditions. But both Guenon and and later Shuan believed that the particular expression of this, and for them, one metaphysical truth that's being expressed in a variety of ways, but the particular expression found in in Vedanta, in the Hindu tradition, they thought was one of the most explicit and and pure. Um, And they they felt in some ways that other expressions could get, in a way, obscured by theological or moralistic uh, concepts. And so they really liked Vedanta as being a particularly pure, explicit expression of what they believe to be the central truth of the primordial tradition. And so, again, I think it's a very good point to bring up that you have this interesting confluence of, you know, orthodox Islamic practice with a somewhat Vedantic perspective.
0: Yeah, no, it's super fascinating. And, um... You know, it's interesting too. We talked about the transcendentalists and I mean, they were deeply influenced, you know, uh Emerson was really interested in Vedanta and yes. you know, uh they were all really so it's interesting. They were you could, you know, you could say that those the transcendentalists were interested prime uh or influenced primarily by uh Neoplatonism. Yes. And then indian philosophy and then persian sufism
1: yes i think that that's a nice summary of of maybe the big three we might say yeah
0: yeah and you know i've actually talked with some you know vedanta teachers about this and that you know it's really fascinating is that within sufism there's a lot about this kind of non-dual, you could say. I mean, there's a, this whole tradition of shatiyat, these kind of mystical utterances, which, you know, and a lot of the poetry and a lot of the, you know, uh, uh, prose even is really getting at this, the subtleties, but you know, and in, in a lot of Sufism is dancing around the, the relationship with the human subjectivity and the ultimate reality. Because, right. you know, ultimately, you could say you can't really utter it anyway. And even if you do utter, it's not going to benefit you because, you know, as the Sufis say, like, you can't explain honey to someone who's never tasted it. And right, right. it's like, just give them a spoonful of honey. Honey, Like, forget a whole library written about honey. Like, that's not going to benefit you. Like, you right. just need a, a spoonful. And so, in a certain sense, you could say you know i mean my own like reflection on it is like the sufis kind of emphasized the initiatic chain to access that reality and let's be careful about talking about it because it sounds outwardly pretty much like it transgresses against the foundational principle of la ilaha illallah right right but on another side it is the most profound articulation of la ilaha illallah
1: that's right and that's well put yeah
0: but uh maybe we can get into that a bit more but just to uh go into inayat khan so we get this uh this this uh the polarities
1: yeah yeah so the in 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 sort of in contrast to Gwynan we have inayat khan who again is somebody who's coming out of the indian sufi tradition and he's he's trained in that tradition with uh, the sheikh uh from the Chishti order. And so he's initiated and and eventually recognized as a sheikh. And he's also a very accomplished musician uh, in classical uh, Indian forms of music. And he at some point uh, is is called upon by his teacher to bring Sufism to the West. And you get the sense in his uh, autobiography, autobiographical writings, that there's a sense of mission of needing to join the East and the West to bring them together um, to kind of create a, a more holistic tradition. And so he goes to the West with, with Sufism and initially uh, does try to teach what we might consider to be more uh, Islamic elements of the Sufi path things like the Shahada, uh, Salat, the daily prayer, um, recitations from the Quran. And initially he does this, but he finds in general that that the Westerners he's encountering are really not that interested in becoming Muslim. They're not really that interested in Islamic traditions as a whole. And uh, what he does find, though, is that a great many of them have been influenced by things like the Theosophical, uh, groups like the Theosophical Society uh, and uh, Transcendentalism. And so what he does is he has this sense of of wanting to convey this message of, of the transformation of the soul. Uh, the oneness of humanity, the oneness of God, the oneness of reality. And he increasingly feels like the time, the times call for a more universal message, that the times call for even the eventual dissolution of boundaries between religions and philosophies, a sort of uh, coming together of of the world's traditions. And so that immediately marks him as being someone quite different in his approach on because whereas Gwenan said the traditions need to remain in a sense separate. I mean, he was also very concerned about uh, syncretism. He didn't mm-hmm. think that any sort of mixing of traditions was going to lead anywhere, that it would just dilute both mm-hmm. and you'd end up with something that doesn't really take you anywhere. He, didn't, he, he thought it was uh, a very negative thing, that really one wanted to find a coherent, integral tradition and, and adopt that and follow it um, separately from the others, even though one might be aware of the others and might appreciate the truths within them and acknowledge them as being perfectly valid. Still, you stick with your own. Whereas with any Khan, we have more of this sense of an emphasis on a universalism that sort of dissolves the boundaries between traditions and uh, a comfort, uh, in integrating different elements. So he created, um, rituals where, you know, they would light candles, uh, for the different religions and they would read from the scriptures of different religions um, and really, kind of creating this ideal of a, of a universal religious tradition that uh, sort of encompasses them all. And so, that is, I think is a really important difference between Inayat Khan and Gwinnan. Um But again, both there you see a th- theosophical influence. I mean, Inayat Khan was, in a way, presenting Sufism uh, much more in accord with, with the theosophical vision of this coming oneness of humanity. Whereas, uh, as you said before, Guinan was, in a sense, reacting a- against it. But one of the best ways that I've, I've heard um, inaya Khan's tradition described is that it is very much a sort of core of the Chishti Sufi or South Asian Sufi tradition. I mean, that's its core. That's the core spiritual training that you find within um, the, uh, the now called the Inayati Order. I mean, it was called the Sufi Order of the West or the Sufi Order International But that's its core, really, is what we might call a sort of classical Sufi tradition. But that core is then sort of packaged or presented in a universalistic, uh, theosophical model, Hmm. we might say. Um, So, yeah, that's maybe one of the main points of contrast between the the two of them.
0: And for Timeline, Inayat Khan was, you know, he came in the first decade of the 20th century. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So he basically, uh, he landed in uh, New York in, in 1910. And, you know, to my reading, that really begins the, the uh, presence of Sufism in North America as, as a living tradition with uh, a sheikh who begins uh, teaching people, initiating people into the Sufi path. Yeah.
0: And you've brought out something really amazing, which is that basically for the next, what, four decades... Or almost five decades, that was what defined Sufism because there really wasn't a lot of other manifestations of you know living Sufi teachers articulating what Sufism is. So he was really defining it, you know, for decades.
1: That's right. That's right. And
0: and I think that's important too because
1: when we look uh, at at general uh, conceptions of of Sufism in North America, and and I find this too in conversations with people, I'll, I'll tell them. You know, this is what I, I research and study. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, but, you know, and I'll tell them about doing Islamic studies and they'll say, whoa, whoa, what, you know, what does Sufism have to do with Islam? I thought Sufism was something just like this sort of universal universal spiritual teaching. And uh, in an interesting way, some of that uh, popular impression that one might come across has its roots in these decades of Inayat Khan's Sufi universalism, we might say. Uh, taking root in North America, and yeah, for a while really being the only game in town. Um, You know, it's not really until the 1970s that you start to see um, teachers from various parts of the world coming into North America and bringing with them lineages and and presenting those lineages in ways that fit more closely with Islamic identity and practice.
0: So that kind of brings us up to... The 60s and 70s counterculture. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does Sufism fit into that general turning east for spirituality? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, to me, and I, it
1: sounds like you might share this, I mean, I, I look back on on the 60s, late 60s and early 70s in particular, it's just one of the most fascinating periods of the uh, 20th century. And, you know, so much of, of the cultural change that, that takes place then um, continues to shape our social context now in, in North America. And, and it, I think it was a really rich, creative time. You know, you've know, you got this confluence of the civil rights movement, the feminist movement. Um, you've You've got the anti-war movement. You've got the psychedelic movement. And all of these things are happening and really influencing and, I think, changing the culture. And one of the interesting things that you see at this time is a lot of young people who are experimenting with psychedelics and through those experiences encountering different states of of consciousness and being that really kind of get them intrigued by the possibility of of exploring consciousness in a more systematic manner. And so they really, building off of the the foundations laid by people like like Emerson um, and the theosophists, um, you know, they they can draw upon uh, these resources that are in Western culture uh, and and one of those resources suggests, as Emerson and many others did, that that you go east, that you look east, that there is uh, there one finds particularly powerful esoteric mystical traditions. And so, a lot of young people do. You know, either they go to India, they they go to Afghanistan, they they go to Japan. You know, they begin studying Zen Buddhism, they begin studying Vedanta. Kashmir Shaivism. They begin studying Sufism. You know, at that that time, Sufism is, uh, I think, seen as one of these Eastern uh, mystical uh, traditions that that allows people to more systematically explore consciousness and ideally sort of elevate it. So yeah, I mean, I, I think at that time, Sufism definitely fits within. Although I don't know if it's as prevalent as, let's say, Zen. I mean, Zen in the 1950s with the beat poets. You know, you've got beat Zen. You've got D.T. Suzuki uh, writing about uh, Zen Buddhism in a popular way that really catches on. Alan Watts. Um, and then in the 1960s and 70s, you you get more Zen teachers coming over to the United States in particular. And you get kind of an explosion of interest in, in Zen Buddhism. I, I would say same with uh, certain Hindu traditions. Again, Vedanta. Um, actually, going back to around uh, the time of Hazrat Ninya Khan, even a little bit before, you have Vedantic traditions coming in, um, and uh, really, I think you see more of that happening uh, in in the 1960s and 70s. So, Hindu gurus, uh, Zen masters—you know—these become people that that many uh, young people coming out of the psychedelic movement go to. And say, look, you know, can you show me how to how to transcend, you know, the limitations of my everyday self? Can you show me how to access deeper levels of consciousness? Now, Sufism is is on the scene as well, but again, as I, I, as I from what I can tell, it was uh, maybe less uh, popular or prevalent, but still very much present. And so, how are people accessing Sufism at this time? Well, two of the, the ways that uh, I pointed to one are, are the writings of Idris Shah. Um, fascinating character. To be honest, I I straight up, I'm not sure what to make of Idris Shah. (laughs) I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, you know, there are a lot of academics who outright dismiss him as basically a charlatan, you know, somebody who um, really didn't have Sufi lineage, uh, you know, really wasn't a Sufi teacher. He was just writing what we might call spiritual fiction, you know, really entertaining stuff. Carlos Castaneda. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, like, basically, a Carlos Castaneda figure, right? Somebody who uh, seems to be presenting something profound, but perhaps it's a little bit more fictionalized than, than we might realize. And that's certainly a possibility. I don't know. I mean, he was... I think rightfully critiqued for for mystifying his own background. I mean, the Sufis that I've encountered, and and I think historically, if you look at Sufism, they tend to be very explicit about where the teachings come from. This is my sheikh or sheikha. And if they don't have a living one, they say, you know, yes, maybe there is the the spiritual form of a teacher that's passed that has initiated me. But they can name somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, And and most often, it's it's through a lineage. And so when you don't uh, find that with Idris Shah, you know, he claimed to, to have a Naqshbandi lineage, but again, couldn't really point to precisely what that was. He described it as a sort of hidden branch of the order. Um, you know, I think he was rightfully criticized in, in general for that. At the same time, I mean, I've read his books and, and I do enjoy them. And, and they're in many ways brilliant. And they, were, they sold phenomenally well. And really, for a lot of Westerners, that was their first encounter I mean, in the 20th century, at least, with with Sufism. You know, he really popularized this idea of Sufism as a sort of hidden underground teaching that crops up everywhere in history and is at the heart of, of a lot of what we think is great and cool about, you know, the West and, and the modern world. Um but again, I don't really know what to make of Shah. I know there are people who have defended him, some of his students. I think Doris Lessing was one who said, you know, he really defended him and said he was a great teacher and an honorable person. And, and you know, and then there are others, uh, especially in the academy, who, who really kind of lambasted him as, as a fraud. So, you know, I'll leave that up to readers and, and anyone, I guess, who's interested can decide for themselves. Mm. But, but that's certainly one of the ways in the 1960s that we see people encountering Sufism.
0: Yeah. And I mean, yeah, like what you're saying is really important. And, and there's one story that uh, an elder of mine who I had the opportunity to spend some time with in Morocco named uh, Dr. Kenneth Honnerkamp, Abduhadi Camp, <laughs> And okay. I think he teaches at University of Georgia or something like that. But anyway, yeah. he, he had a really fascinating journey and that, you know, he was coming up in that age, like 60s, early 70s. You know, and he was, uh, you know, probably experimenting with psychedelics. And I'm really glad by the way that you bring that up because I think a lot of people that didn't go through that trajectory or, or yes. aren't really familiar with it That's don't right. really That's understand right. how profound of an element that really was yes. for shifting yes. the the whole cultural context. Because, yes. and I yes. think people that have experienced, you know, as Jimi Hendrix would say it you know, (laughs) uh, who really have experienced, they have no doubt that, you know, and there's all these metrics actually, you know, in psychology of like, I forget exactly the word they use, but it's like someone's openness to new ideas, right? Right. So there's like, there's a spectrum and there's certain people that are very closed minded and they're rule minded and they just get, you know, this is how we do it. I'm going to enforce the law and I'm going to tell on you if you're not doing it right. You know what I mean? And then there's people that are very open to new ideas, and they're willing to look at things very different ways. And all these studies have shown people that have done things like you know LSD even one time, it totally yeah. moves you down the spectrum where now you're totally open to new ideas. I don't know. Let's look at it. I'm not sure. And you start to question things in this really profound way. So it totally alters your your cognitive frames for many mm-hmm. people. And like you say, I mean, people just come into contact with very – Profound, expansive states of consciousness, almost like paradise realms and hell realms, and yeah. a lot of it is like, you know, religious symbolism presents itself, right. and you know, right. and and so then people are like, okay, I need a map for what I just experienced, like some, like I need a key to d- decipher this, and so a lot of people start turning, like you say, to these. Eastern traditions that put emphasis on understanding consciousness, transforming mm-hmm. consciousness. That's and right. uh, But anyway, so Abdul Hadi Hunter camp is an amazing story. And it kind of like is a beautiful little thread to follow how a lot of this happened. So he went probably in the early 70s. And he was like, I'm going to India, right? Ram Dass okay. had just come back and all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the Beatles were like with Mah- Maharishi and like, you know what I mean? So it's on the cover yeah. of time, everyone's going to India. And so he said the cheapest way to do it at the time was to take like a, a boat, like a tanker, and you go all the way up t- through the Mediterranean to Istanbul. And then from Istanbul, you could take the train over land and it goes right over Turkey, Um, it goes Afghanistan, it goes Iran, Pakistan to India. And of course, they're all Muslim countries. So you have all these hippies. That's the hippie trail. And so, (laughs) uh, right? And like we just named pretty much the whole axis of evil also. But back then it (laughs) it was like, he was like it was totally open. Like there was all these you know long-haired hippies getting off at every stop and experiencing these traditional cultures which many like, places still didn't have you know electricity very much in a in a very traditional uh you know world and right. abdul hadi just talks about like you know okay. buying calligraphy in istanbul he had no idea what he says but he liked it and then You know, being in the Swat Valley in Pakistan and riding some bus and being on the top of a bus and coming down and seeing this humongous wooden, like pagoda looking thing with like these huge flags flapping in the wind in the Swat Valley and hearing a voice. He said he literally heard a voice that said, If you leave this valley, you'll never find what you're looking for. Wow. And and so he he was with a friend, then they're on their way to India and they stayed for a few days in this village. And then the friend said, well, I'm, I'm going to continue on. He said, go ahead. I'm going to stay. Something tells me I have to stay. And so he stayed there and he found out that pagoda, He those people that kept going to the pagoda, it was at the bottom of the valley and he would, at nighttime, they would walk with their lanterns because there's no electricity, downhill to this building and then they would walk uphill back. And he said he felt like they were just floating up and down the hill. He was why he'd watch the lanterns at night, every night, every, you know. And he went in and he realized, he didn't really know anything, but he realized it was a mosque. And it was like a traditional kind of like Swap Valley mosque. Like he said, the floor of it was actually dried grass that people uh-huh. prostrate on. And it was like, you know, doesn't look like any mosque, a stereotypical mosque with a dome. It was very much in the it kind of quote unquote indigenous architecture. Right. But he lived there and he apprenticed with a tailor and he started learning like how to be a tailor. And he ended up becoming Muslim. Um, in that valley and living in that valley for 10 years. Wow, wow. And he learned the language and he studied traditionally with the sheikh and the whole thing. But, you know, before all that, a, a month or two later, after he become Muslim, his friend comes back. And he said, oh, hey, man, you're here. He, he said, uh, how, how are you doing, Ken? He said, I'm not Ken anymore. I'm Abdul Hadi. He said, how are you doing, Mike? He said, I'm not Mike anymore. I'm Abdul Rahman. So he had become Muslim somehow. And he said the way that he did it is that he was on a bus going to India and a little old man gets on the bus and he walks slowly at the bus stop, slowly, slowly on the bus and he walks down the aisle and he misses all the other empty seats and he sits right next to him. Hmm. And, you know, he's just silent and they go. And then he looks at him, he says, who is your prophet? And this dude, you know, imagine hippie from America. He goes, I don't have a prophet. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. And he goes, and he said he just looked at him with, like, sincere sadness. Like, you don't have a prophet. Like, sincerely. And then he mm. just, and then the next stop came, and he got off slowly, and he left. And then the bus departed. And Abdurrahman, who I know now, he, he runs a language school in Marrakesh. Very beautiful brother. Wow. He told me that on the next stop, he got off and he said, where's the mosque? I need to become a Muslim. Because he felt so empty at that moment, like, I don't have a prophet. I need a prophet, you know, I need a guide on the path. And so they both, but you know, these are like, the fascinating stories. And I know another one is uh, someone who you actually mentioned in your book was Abdul Haq Godless. And he actually, very similarly, but he was in Iran. So, I mean, all this turning east, counterculture is very central. And then another individual who you mentioned in the book and who is just a character, I've heard many people talk about him, and so I hope maybe you could talk about him and how he ties into this whole moment, you know, Sufism and the counterculture, 60s and 70s, is Sufi Sam. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Sufi Sam, I, I mean... Very fascinating character, indeed. Um, somebody who was a, a student of Hazrat Inayat Khan. Uh, somebody who was very well-traveled. Um, he went all over the world, uh, all through South Asia, East Asia. Um, he was very open to a variety of traditions. He's very interested in things like Zen. But I think was actually quite well-grounded in the Sufi tradition, maybe more than he's given credit for. Uh, if you look at his writings, you know, he's clearly very well grounded in, in the tradition. And uh, I think a very charismatic teacher. And interestingly enough, at some point uh, later in his life, while he's uh, recovering in the hospital, he has this this sense of being called to be a teacher to the hippies in the Bay Area at the time, which is where he was based. So in the Mission District of San Francisco, he starts hosting these teaching sessions and, uh, also in, in part through, uh, interaction with, uh, Eniak Khan's uh, son, uh, Inayat Khan, he comes up with these universal dances of peace, uh, and which at the time was just called soupy dancing. And this really becomes a fixture on, on the countercultural scene at the time. I mean, I think they opened for the grateful dead at some point hmm. uh, in the Bay area, and uh, that that I think is another way that, especially in, in that part of the country, uh, young people start to encounter Sufism. And what, what I love about that is is how it creates this incongruity. You know, there's people who at that time would, would encounter the Sufi dancers who would be in their dancing and singing, including chants from a variety of different traditions. And for a lot of people, then they start to think of Sufism as being this very chill, open, you know, world peace and spirituality and, uh, eclecticism. And that gets associated in the minds of many with, with Sufism. And then of course, in the seventies, when you have, uh, more, more Muslim teachers coming over, they're then going, Oh wait, well, here's this person who's a traditional Muslim Sheikh with a turban and a beard. And that's also Sufism, you know? So I, I, I dig how that creates this, uh, this incongruity there. Mm. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so there's so much with the history, and really it could go on and on. But I want to get to the the second half of the book, which you could even say was the heart of the book. Like Once you set the stage, right. then you talk to a wide variety of Sufi teachers, and you ask them a series of questions. So I guess um, my question about that is, What were the questions, the main questions you asked, and why were those the specific questions that you were most curious about? Right. So, out of
1: the various questions that I I asked the teachers that I, I interviewed, I mean, I think they can really be reduced down to one question per chapter, right? So there's one chapter that deals with the question of adapting Sufism in North America, and there's another chapter that deals with the relationship between Sufism and Islam, and really those those were the two main questions. Now I, I asked those questions in a variety of ways, but, but the central question of each of those chapters uh, was one: um, you know, what when, when you're teaching Sufism in North America, what do you keep and what do you change? Most simply, you know, you know what, what is the essence of the tradition that, that you are trying to transmit and preserve? And what are the ways in which you are uh, adapting the Sufi tradition to convey that essence, to transmit that essence? Uh, The other question then is, you know, how do you understand the relationship between Sufism and Islam? And, you know, with that, there are there are correlate questions like, you know, do you have to be Muslim to be a Sufi? What does it really mean to be a Muslim? Um, You know, that sort of thing. So those, those are really the two broad themes that I was interested in. Now, now, one, I was interested in those because... When I started studying the subject, uh, I I noticed that, that those seem to be the points at which Sufi teachers diverged from one another. Those seem to be the pivots on which they would turn in one direction or another. So either they would say, these things must remain the same. And another teacher would say, no, these things we must change. And then you would get, you know, two branches of an order. Or in some cases, they would say, you know, look, you can only be the Sufi, if you're also a devout Muslim and someone, some other teacher would say, well, no, um, you know, uh, this is coming out of an Islamic context, but people can practice this without converting to Islam. And then you get, again, a, a divergence. So I was really drawn to those themes as I, I was encountering the tradition. I found, OK, these are these are the points of difference. Um, and then the other thing that I would say about that is it's also how. Scholars have tended to classify Sufi groups in North America. They've tended to uh, classify them based on either how much they've adapted their tradition to a North American context, or uh, classify them based on their relationship to Islam. And and so I, I think for those reasons, uh, those were the two main themes that I was really interested in in talking to Sufi leaders about. And and again, because scholars have tended to classify uh, teachers. According to these things, I wanted to know what, what did they think about these issues? You know, in their own words, how did they understand the relationship between Sufism and Islam? You know, how did they articulate the choices they've made in adapting or not the, the tradition?
0: Yeah, and, you know, to tie it back to the two individuals that you framed the, the early Sufism in North America, Inay Khan and René Guignon. You spoke with basically, you could say, two represented the two living representatives of those streams, of those traditions, that being that yeah. Nasser and uh, and Pir Zia Khan. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I'm, I'm glad you
1: you brought them up because I, I found, you know, going uh, into their perspectives and actually comparing their their two perspectives in particular proved to be really interesting for me. Yeah. Um, in part because I found that their articulations of the relationship between Sufism and Islam, although one would expect to be um, quite strongly in contrast to one another, actually were, were quite close. They, they overlapped in, in a number of interesting ways.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that was one thing that came through in the book, is that you were trying to, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, problematize some of the categories. So you were yes. saying that, like, Yeah, some of these groups that say they're, you know, or downplay or outright say they're not Muslims, but they're Sufis, they actually, in so many ways, are very similar, or, you you know, in so many categories that check the box of what a traditional Sufi order is, and then on the other hand, those who are very much like Sharia-grounded, you know, Islam, Iman, Ihsan... Traditionalists—that's yeah, right—that um, they have a very universal vantage point on what Sufism is, what Islam itself is. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and, and
1: to me, this was one of the things that I thought was one of the most interesting findings of my fieldwork. And and for me personally, it was a great affirmation of the importance of doing this. You know, I had had mentors and teachers in graduate school who, you know, kept saying to me, you know, cool, you're, you're doing all this reading, and, and you're getting all these categories and, and classifications and, and history, and, and you're getting that down, but you should really go out and talk to people and spend time with people and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And that was one of, for me, the really interesting things about this project was going out, meeting with Sufi teachers, spending time at their centers, and having really in-depth conversations with them on these issues. And it, it really started to affect how I was seeing things. I, I guess one of the things that I really enjoyed about the project was, was the way in which my encounters with, with Sufi teachers and spending time with them it, to, in, to some degree dissolved the categories that I was working with. Um, you know, for instance, I found that Sayyid Hossein Nasser, who uh, is, is one of the leading representatives of the traditionalist school of thought going back to Shu'an and he uh, he's a sheikh uh, within the Meriamiyah uh, tariqa or Sufi order um, founded by Fr. Shuan. Uh, and he's somebody who, uh, as as a traditionalist in in their mode, uh, definitely understands uh, truth and and salvation to be found within the world's different religious traditions. So, in that sense, he's he's what is called a perennialist. But uh, like went on is somebody that believes that you know you need to. Uh, integrally practice one of these traditions to fruitfully access the, the esoteric truth found within it, um, and so I thought you know there's going to be a really sharp contrast between his understanding of Sufism and Islam than there would be uh, with uh, the perspective of, of Inayat Khan, uh, and in this case Zia Inayat Khan, you know, the, basically Hazrat Inayat Khan's grandson, who is is now the leader of what was the sufi order international now the inayat order as it's recently been uh, changed to but what i found so interesting is that zia inayat khan's articulation of the relationship between sufism and islam was actually quite close to said of nasser's um, you know zia inayat khan expressed concern that you know universalism can be understood in an unnuanced way that uh, totally dissolves the borders and boundaries between different traditions, Uh, and and he feels that's actually a mischaracterization of his tradition, and in in many respects he's emphasizing the uh, Iniyati order's connection to Chishti Sufism in South Asia, and in many respects he's sort of bringing back some classical Islamic uh, principles and and practices uh, into the order. So I actually saw a lot of of, uh, similarities between their approaches. Um, you know, one of the other things that I found very interesting was looking at uh, Llewellyn Von Lee in the Golden Sufi Center. Mm-hmm. Um, that group in particular struck me as, as very fascinating because uh, Von Lee was one of the few teachers who explicitly identified as uh, somebody who has a non-Islamic Sufi order. You know, uh, he was actually comfortable using that that terminology. And, and that's in part because uh, his teacher was a Russian woman, Irina Tweedy, uh, who herself encountered a Hindu Sufi teacher in India. And what's so cool about this particular lineage is that this Hindu Sufi sheikh uh, himself came from a family of, of Hindu Sufi teachers who had been initiated by a Muslim Sufi teacher. Uh, and, and his lineage was the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi. And what's, what's so fascinating about this, if you, if you know anything about the Naqshbandi Mujadidis, they have historically been an Islamic revivalist Sufi order. So they were founded uh, in the 17th century by uh, Ahmed Sir Hindi, who was a reviver of Islam. You know, he's widely regarded as, as a reviver of Islam. He was somebody who uh, didn't like the way that Sufism uh, and, and Islam were being uh, mixed with Hindu traditions in India. He, he wanted to revive adherence to the Sharia Islamic law and and uh, revive a, a strong sense of Muslim identity. But what's so fascinating is his lineage, the Naqshbandi-Mujaddidi lineage, uh, eventually uh, became more and more open to Hindus. You know, there were many Naqshbandi teachers who started saying, okay, well, we can initiate uh, Hindus into this tradition. And at some point, there was a Muslim sheikh who even passed the lineage on in full to a Hindu family and, and made some of them teachers in their own right and, and told them, look, you know, this is uh, about the realization of truth and, you know, your religious identity is, is totally secondary. So the and von Lee then uh, inherits this tradition, which because it had spent time in a Hindu context, you know, wasn't really seen as being particularly Islamic at this point. But what I found so interesting is when I spent time with him and, and interviewed him, in many respects, he was a very traditional Naqshbandi teacher. You know, he, he emphasized the importance of lineage, um, you know, the, the golden chain, as the Naqshbandis call it, and going back to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, you know, he uh, studied the, the principles of early Sufism uh, and taught those to his students. You know, there was nothing really, uh, you might say, new age about this. You know, the idea was that uh, students would, would commit to a sheikh and would, you know, uh, practice uh, daily uh, traditional Naqshbandi forms of meditation. And so what I found here was this, this very interesting mix of a sort of non-Islamic form with a very traditional Sufi essence, we might say. And, and that sort of mixture just didn't seem to be adequately accounted for in the literature that I'd come across. You know, people would assume that if a, Muslim, if a Sufi teacher was non Muslim, then, well, this is probably just some kind of, you know, New Age, commercialized, ungrounded Sufism. Unconnected with lineage and tradition. But I, I actually found something quite different with Von Lee in the Golden Sufi Center. And I thought that was really important to highlight that when you actually go and, and meet and speak with Sufi teachers, some of your, your categories are going to get uh, blurred and, and even dissolved.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. And, you know, I love it, man. Like, um, I've had the opportunity to be amongst a wide Spectrum of Sufi communities in North America, yeah. and you know it's just amazing, man. You know, and one of the most amazing experiences when I was years ago, um, I a friend of mine. It was Ramadan. It was the last. Yeah. Uh, it was Laylatul Qadr. It was the twenty seventh night. And a, fr- a friend of mine was like, "Hey, we're going up to uh, Pope Valley, which is north of the Bay Area by a few hours. We're going yeah. to the Sufi Center." And they're having some, uh, you know, celebration for this special night. So I said, OK, let's go. So I drove up with them and we get up there. It's right by Napa Valley, right by Wine Country. And okay. we're out in the woods, like literally middle of nowhere. And I walk into this room and it's like 300 middle aged white like (laughs) rural people and they're all like la ilaha illallah la ilaha illallah muhammadun rasulullah, alaihi salatullah and like chanting and doing dhikr and like praying like qiyamul layl and tahajjud and taraweeh and like staying up all night chanting the divine names and I was just like whoa this is like this is an alternate universe Right, you know, because my exposure to Islam was very much like an urban Islam, so like I always try to tell people that you know like it might be hard for people to get, but like like my Islam was very much through like hip hop and so like the whole like black Muslims, Malcolm, and that whole thing those were the Muslims that I knew, and then, but also because like the some of my elders. Had really gone through the counterculture 60s and 70s, like Rumi, you know, that, like the Rumi texts were everywhere in, in the houses that I grew up with and of my best friends and stuff like that. And so it was like really, you know, Rumi and Malcolm, or as my friend Amir Suleman says, Rakim and Rumi, you know, it's like, and, uh, so, but you know, I was very much like always interested in Sufism. But like the my, the actual like Muslims I knew were very much like that come from that like urban trajectory. And so to see like this a whole you know demographic that is clearly not being reached by anyone else, you could say within the Muslim community is being reached through this. And and that community is the Shadhili Sufi order. And uh, Sheikh uh, Muhammad uh, Jamal from yeah. from uh, Palestine, he was the Mufti of Jerusalem. And I got to meet him. He passed away uh, about a year or so ago. But, you know, it was just fascinating. And he was the type of person who, again, like an alim, like a, a, a well respected Sheikh of the sacred law, the Sharia, and a Sufi Sheikh as well. And he comes to America and he realizes, like, okay, I'm going to have to adapt this to a context. And actually, I don't know if you know this story, but apparently there was a kind of, you know, new age spiritual teacher uh, who was a big deal, apparently. And, you know, he was doing channeling and psychic work and all this stuff. And he met the Sheikh Mohammed and basically was so transformed by his presence that he took the Sufi path and became Muslim. He became Ibrahim Jaffe. And so his whole following, which was like hundreds of people, it took the path with him. Wow, wow. And so, you know, I mean, but there's communities like that that people just don't necessarily know about. And, you know, I'm so fascinated by the whole thing, you know, and uh, one of the beautiful stories that you highlight in the book was the Jirahis, And I think this is an amazing, amazing example because, you know, Sheikh Muzaffar Effendi was just an amazing individual and his life is very just fascinating. But he had the insight to realize, okay, there's some people that want the spiritual, you, you, you know, and it comes down to like the whole, you know, age old debate of the letter versus the spirit. You know? that's right and so he said some people want the spirit but they don't they're not really interested in the letter and some people want the more traditional the whole piece you know the whole traditional way that we've always you know we've done things and so he made way for both so maybe you could tell a little bit about the story and the um the woman that the sheikha that you interviewed
1: yeah i i really enjoyed encountering the jarahi tradition and um, you know, I, it's interesting how through somebody's students, sometimes you, you kind of get a sense of, of who their teacher was. And certainly with uh, Sheikh Muzaffar, there is a really powerful sense of, of his spiritual you know, charisma. Um, Robert Fraser and uh, Friha al-Jarahi. Um, both of whom I, I interviewed and, and who represent, uh, two different branches of his order, both gave this, this really incredible sense of being transformed just by his glance or presence. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I really liked about in encountering that tradition was it, it really illustrates well, um, how I, I think some of these boundaries get blurred. I mean, if, if you look at some of the things that Sheikh Muzaffar said, one of the most beautiful stories that I really enjoyed hearing was um, from Robert Fraser, who said that uh, some of Sheikh Muzaffar's students were, were taking him around the United States. You know, he's visiting from, from Istanbul, and uh, they brought him to a research university and, and to a laboratory, and, and you know, he was really kind of intrigued by some of the scientific work that was being done there. And he was, he was very impressed and, and was saying a lot of really, you know, elevated things about, about the research scientists. And one of his students said, well, you know, Sheikh, um, you know, many of these people are, are atheists. And he responded, well, he said, they're devoting their life to studying haq, to studying truth. And he said, and that's one of God's names. So he said, maybe they're better Muslims than we are. Hmm. Yeah. And and so, and this is a teacher who, uh, as you say, was somebody who, who wasn't, I mean, he was an imam, you know, he was a prayer leader. Uh, he had an Islamic bookstore. He was, he was very well grounded in the traditions of Islamic law, in the traditions of Islamic theology. You know, he very much represents a, a classical model of Sufism, which is, uh, you know, sharia, uh, tariqah, haqqa, you know, that you, you start with the law. And that the, the, the boundaries of the law contain the spiritual path, and you within that you take the spiritual path to haqqa, to the truth, to reality. And so, you know, and, that, and that's one of the, the stories that I love because it illustrates so well that even somebody who is very much grounded in the Islamic tradition and understands Sufism as integral to the Islamic tradition also had this, this generosity of spirit and this openness to, to realize that the, the deep meaning of, of Islam is something that goes beyond communal identification, you know that, and I and I saw that from a lot of the jirahis. You know, they said, "Look, Islam has this this much deeper, more universal meaning. It's not just about, you know, uh, are you praying five times a day? It's how are you praying. You know, what, what's your state while you're praying." Uh, Sheikh Muzaffar also said, "Sometimes Muslims are the hardest people to make Muslim. <laughs> you know, like like sometimes if you get a spiritual ego, it's actually really tough to to penetrate that to get you to a place of genuine surrender to God." Mm. as opposed to, you know, just simply a sense of, of identity. And and so I think that kind of deeper understanding of of Islam Muslim um was was really interesting to, to hear especially coming out of a tradition like that. Um yeah, you know, I mean there, there's a there's a lot um that I could I could say about that um about the Jarahi tradition in
0: particular. Yeah, because what Yeah, what's amazing, right, is that uh Sheikh Muzaffar, he, he you know, made a Turkish uh, disciple, made him the head of a very you know, Turkish-style teke, or Sufi center, that was basically doing exactly what they're doing back in Turkey, at the kind of mother center That's of their jarahis. But then, on the other hand, he saw that there's this Lex Hickson, Nur Lex Hickson, who was a really amazing, interesting individual, had a radio show interviewing all the different spiritual teachers at the time, you know, had a like a PhD from Yale in religious studies, and is practicing multiple different traditions, and, you know, takes the path, becomes a Sufi, becomes a Muslim with the Sheikh Muzaffar, and so he sees in him something special, and he says, I'm going to put you in charge of this center that we have in Manhattan, And it's going to be very much modeled for seekers, for people that aren't necessarily interested in Islam, but they want to draw near to the Divine Presence. They want to do, you know, chanting or or remembrance or meditation or these type of things. And I think that is so fascinating that within that order you kind of have two branches that come off from Muzaffar's insight that there's two kind of type of seekers that are interested in Sufism.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that is is such a good example of that. You know, he, he seemed to foster these two different approaches. And, right, so then uh, you have um, Lex Hickson, who who has a branch of the Jirahi order, which uh, then uh, Sheikh al-Fariha, uh, who's the, the current representative, the current Sheikha of that order, um, you know, takes over from, from uh, Hickson and continues this, this model of a very open approach to Sufism. I mean, she herself is, is a Muslim, and it's a very we might say, Islamically oriented order in the sense that, you know, they're, they're preserving the traditional um, prayers. And, you know, she, she teaches Salat and, you know, they, they recite the Quran and their center in uh, New York is, is a mosque. Um, but it's also very open. You know, she says, look, I don't teach Salat as an obligation. I teach it as a door to spiritual knowledge. So, you know, it's not something you have to do, but if you try it out, you might find that it's really helping your path. You know, so it, it's it's a sort of interesting approach. And, and for her, you don't have to be a Muslim to be a part of, of uh, her particular branch of the Jirahi order. Whereas if you look at the one uh, that was, was taught by uh, Tosin Bayrak from, was another one of the students of Sheikh Muzaffar Ozak, you know, that is a branch that um, you do have to be Muslim to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the daily prayers and things are, are taught in a more traditional way of, of being obligations of Sharia upon you. You know, so in in a way, they they look similar in in the sense that the practices they do are are very similar, but their understanding of them is is quite different. Mm. Um, you know, I think one other example of that that I find so fascinating is is Babo mm. and Babo Mahayadi, like Sheikh Muzaffer and and maybe even to a greater degree, um, taught people uh, different approaches. You know, and I found this when I went to the. Um, Baba Mahidin Fellowship in in Philadelphia, you know I was talking to the students and it was so interesting. You know I met the uh, Imam of their Masjid, who I, I attended his Friday uh, khutbah, his Friday sermon. I mean, and it was a fire and brimstone sermon. Like, like you know, it's one of those sermons that's very old school. Like, like you know, the Day of Judgment is coming, and and who do you think you are that you're going to be okay on that day? You know, look at yourself, look at how you live, and and rectify yourself. It was. You know, very sort of classic prophetic, um, you know, sermon, uh, warning, and uh, so you have this this very uh, we might say you know Islamic sense of of Bawa's teachings. I talked to uh, another one of his students who said, I almost didn't want to talk to you because you're studying Sufism, and I don't even call this Sufism, let alone Islam. You know, this this has no category whatsoever. Bawa never taught me to pray five times a day. Bawa never taught me to label myself anything. He taught me just the the oneness of, of reality and, and how to realize that in each moment and how to live the qualities of God, the names of God, you know, love, mercy, compassion, wisdom, just how to adopt and live those qualities in my life. And that's all he taught me. So to call it Islam, to call it Sufism, you know, it's, it's completely outside of any of those boxes. So, so to meet people like that, uh, who had such contrasting understandings of Baba's teachings and then you know the more that i looked at through tradition to realize that that's how he very consciously taught it he told some people yes you know praying five times a day will be good for you that's something that you should do um you know he had them build a mosque um but for other of his students you know he he wouldn't mention any of those types of practices for them and and again you know you get then these different understandings of, of what his teachings are and what sufism is
0: yeah, it's so beautiful. And I read this book. It was really an amazing book. I think it's called Muzaffer Effendi and the Transmission of Sufism to the West, which is about Mozefra yeah. Effendi. I, I know. Yeah, it's a great book. It's so. an amazing book. And I literally found it. It was super random, but it, I just found it when I was in Konya this year. And, wow. and uh, I felt like it was definitely for me to read. Like it was on a bookshelf at a restaurant. And there was no other books. And I'll ask the waiter, like, why is this book here? And he goes, I don't know. and then I wanted I was like I feel like this book's for me but I didn't want to like ask for it and he goes do you want it and I said yes He said okay just bring it back when you're done reading it and I was like okay (laughs) so I went and read it and brought it back you know and it was one of the most profound beautiful books I read but and you really get a sense of just how vast Sheikh Mosef Effendi was of of just a soul and Mm -hmm. you know one thing though the, the story that they told in that is that Muzaffar Efendi met some of the the disciples of Bawa who had passed on by then and they told him they said Bawa for 10 years all he taught us was La ilaha illallah all he taught right. us is there's no God but God there's no one but the one and they said Muzaffar said ah we should have done that
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and oh, that's I, awesome I yeah. thought that was so beautiful and you know What a lot of people don't know is that Bawa is the key. He's the reason that Rumi is the number one selling poet in America because amongst his students was a young man named Coleman Barks. That's right. And Bawa told him, basically, you have to translate this. And, you know, I heard Coleman, uh, or I read something that he wrote talking about his time with Bawa, and he said, we prayed, we prayed five times a day. But it was yep. never a question of this is obligatory or not. Like that never crossed into our mind. It was done out of pure love and devotion to the ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was, you know, wow. You know, when he said that and, and, you know, I, you can see on, on YouTube videos of Bawa and some of him talking, some of him singing, the ones of him singing particularly. Yeah. like And you could tell, like, this is not a normal human being. Like, there's something so <laughs> special and unique about him. Like,
1: who is this Even person? the pictures. I mean, you, you see a picture of Bawa and it's like you're not entirely sure he comes from this planet. Yep, <laughs> you exactly. know, like
0: <laughs> and uh, they say, like, they found him somewhere in the jungle in Sri Lanka. Like, where would you come from? But, yeah, I mean, and there's so many amazing, like, characters and movements. And, you know, I guess one of the, the questions that I had for you is if we step back and we look at, okay, Sufism as this, quote-unquote, obviously, Eastern tradition coming to the West, um, and then if we were to compare that a little bit to what happens with other traditions, um, because I read a book... Well, there's a few books. There's one book called How the Swans Came to the Lake, which is kind of like a classic about Buddhism coming to America, which has a lot of good information in it. Um, But then more recently, there's a book called American Veda or Vedas uh i think I, Phil, I, F- philip goldberg i believe is his name right
1: yeah actually i was i was able to meet him at a, a conference a few years back a very cool guy and i think a, a very interesting book yeah
0: that book i love that book man i read it cover yeah. to cover i read it multiple times highlighting things because it's not just a history but he really has a lot of really profound reflections on because if you think about it hinduism is unique because very few americans became hindu like, it's not a big thing, like way fewer probably than became Muslim, I would guess, although I don't know. That's right. yeah. But uh, how ubiquitous is you know uh, the influence of Hinduism on American culture. I mean, it's unbelievable if you just okay, yoga studios on every corner. Um, right. the term "enlightenment" uh, in Nirvana. <laughs> Um, reincarnation, karma, like right. all these terms they didn 't exist like western people didn 't know about them a hundred years ago except outside of like very obscure like scholarship right so it 's like now there 's just so influential and he and he traces why that happened and how that happened and one thing that he says that if you had all these you know Hindu masters coming to America, and he said there were some that were successful and some that weren 't. And he argues that the ones that were successful, what they had in common is that they downplayed Hinduism as a religion, and that they what they 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 emphasized is they said this is a science of consciousness transformation. This is a science, right. Right. and those were the ones that were successful. And you know, he says so much more. But one thing he says that is related to this that I never forgot. He th- he said religion has five. It fulfills five things and he put the prefix trans Uh, I'm not sure if I can remember them all but there's like transmission, translation uh, transaction transformation and transcendence those are the five and so transaction is like the rules, you know, like the the sacred law um uh, and then, you know, the other things are relating to you know, uh transmission, of course, is like the the tradition, like, you know, in, in Islam it's like the, the hadith and the, you know, all these things, all the information that's passed on generation from generation. Uh, but then when you get to the higher, basically the higher two, he draws a line, the higher two are transformation and transcendence. So you could say the inner two, the more kind of like what we'd associate with the esoteric or the contemplative. And he says that you have to understand is that Western religion had failed to fulfill these higher two. They'd failed to fulfill transformation and transcendence anymore. And so that is the reason that all these people are turning east for spirituality. And what they're really seeking, they're not seeking for another set of rules. They're not really even seeking for another history, another bunch of stuff to memorize. You know what I mean? They're really seeking for transformation and transcendence. Yes, and so the teachers, the the Hindu teachers that emphasize that while kind of downplaying the other elements, were the ones that were successful. Right. So I'm curious if you could speak to that within the Islamic context, or how you think that plays out. I, I, re- I mean, I
1: really like that analysis, and I, I think there's a lot to that. I, I think it also ties in with, um, and I know if I've mentioned before uh, Robert Wuthnow's work. Uh, where he talked about this idea of, uh, you know, North American religiosity shifting from a spirituality of dwelling, which is, uh, you know, a spirituality based in a local church or synagogue or temple, um, and uh, one that that really offers you more uh, tradition, community, uh, but not really so much transformation and transcendence. It's a very domestic form of religion. And it fit with a lot of what people wanted in the interwar years and and in the the post World War II years, uh, you know, building families, um, you know, economic boom, um, and I, I think what, what what he argues is that then we see in the 1960s this shift to a spirituality of seeking. Where and I, and I think it, it dovetails with this analysis that for those young people who were craving something more, um, who wanted transformation and transcendence, they weren't getting that in this domestic local congregation that was basically just sort of, you know, preserving the norms of, of the community and giving people a sense of continuity and stability. You know, they didn't want continuity and stability. They they wanted uh, adventure. They w- they wanted um, challenge. You know, they they wanted to uh, question things in a very profound way and, and experience things in a very visceral way. Uh, and of course, we see this with like the beat movement, um, you know, the fascination with Zen, and then eventually the psychedelic movement, and then, of course, you know, the the growth of, of these contemplative traditions coming out of Hindu and Buddhist and, and Muslim contexts. So, I mean, I, th- I think it's a, it's a very good analysis. And and it's interesting that you see, I mean, one of the ways to think about this is when you look at uh, Swami Vivekananda, uh, who was one of the, the first Hindu teachers to come over to the West. He actually came over to, for the... Um, the world fair in Chicago in the uh, 1890s and the world's parliament of religions, right. They had this bringing representatives from different religions together in Chicago. And so Vivekananda, I mean, he blew people's minds. I mean, he, he was the sensation of uh, the event. Um, And how he presented Hinduism was precisely as you're describing, you know, he didn't say, look, you know, um, you need to, I mean, and really some people have argued, you can't really convert to Hinduism because, uh, it's you know there's the caste system and you can't really convert into a caste. Um, but you know he didn't present it as something. Look, there's there's a caste system and there are you know the laws of manu, you know governing social relations. You know that's not what he presented at all. What he presented was uh, the, we might say uh, something that he formulated as the spiritual essence, the spiritual essence of Hinduism, which he believed was the Vedanta tradition, and he presented it precisely as a science of of mind and consciousness and spirit as something that wasn't dogmatic, as as something that uh, wasn't going to get in a fight with science. And this is another thing, too. A lot of North Americans were kind of weary of this religion-science battle. And, you know, the the profound successes of the scientific tradition seemed for a lot of them to put religion on its back feet. And so to have a tradition that wasn't saying, no, I'm going to, you know, stand on the ground of of, uh, dogma – um, and, uh, you know, an unquestioned belief in, in the face of science, you know, people were, were drawn to somebody who was saying, no, actually, you know, we don't have to take that stance, that, that spirituality, um, spiritual practice and, and science can, can coincide very closely. And, and so it was a very popular presentation. So again, he didn't teach Hinduism, he taught Vedanta, right? And I think there's a very strong parallel there with how Inayat Khan, who's coming, remember, you know, just about a decade or so after uh, Swami Vivekananda, Iniyat uh, Khan then does almost essentially the same thing with the uh, Sufi Islamic tradition. You know, he doesn't come in saying, you know, here are the basics of the Sharia. Um, you know, you're going to have to stop eating bacon in the mornings and, and that sort of thing. He's he's not so concerned with that. He's concerned with teaching the spiritual essence, which he calls Sufism or or just the message, as he would eventually call it. And, and so, again, you see a very similar pattern of saying, look, this is something that here are a set of practices that you can experiment with. You know, here's here's a belief that that isn't dogmatic, that isn't sectarian, um, that is opening to a universal era and understanding. And and it, you know, it, it was successful largely in that he, he gained a, a concerted group of followers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the cool things. And I, I would love to do more on this in the future or, or see more people do this is more comparative work. You know, I mean, because you see so many of the same patterns in how Hindus and Buddhists and, and Muslims have adapted their traditions and, and in a way, you know, you could put it simply, do well, two ways. When there's the old Sufi saying, you know, water takes on the color of the container that you pour it into. You know, so when you are pouring a contemplative tradition into a North American container, you know, it will take on some of the colors of the North American context, right? Uh, and the other way to think about that is if you want to communicate something to people, you, you need to speak their language or they won't understand you. And it's not simply, language isn't just English, you know, language is, is the conceptual framework that you're operating within. And so if, if these teachers didn't present their contemplative traditions in ways that resonated with North Americans, then yeah, they wouldn't be successful and they, they wouldn't actually do their, their mission as they understood it, which was to, to complete their mission, which was to transmit these, these teachings. Right?
0: So. Hmm. Another thing that yeah those are all really good points and another thing that relates to that that I've been thinking about a lot for instance living for a long time in the Bay Area um, the Bay Area has been a center for a lot of counterculture stuff but you mentioned like Buddhism, there's a lot of uh, Buddhist communities in the Bay Area and one thing that I noticed because in San Francisco as well as Oakland, there's uh, there's you know a very large Chinatown, an old chinatown, and, okay yeah, and then there's Japantown as well in san francisco, yeah. and there's a lot of Buddhist centers there that are right. very much culturally Chinese, and you don't That's see you know American people there no. like, you know um but then you know San Francisco Zen Center you know, and then all these other you know, large Buddhist organizations that it's, they're almost like parallel universes is what I'm getting at is there's all these yes. like converts to Buddhism or now even yes. like children of converts to Buddhism. And then there's the kind of like immigrant Buddhism. If yeah. You, if you will. Yeah. And they're totally exist in different universes. Like there's, re- right. there's really like now a lot of the, the convert Buddhist uh, communities, they, Take from, or draw from, or, or, or get their lineage from a you know uh, teacher from wherever you know, whether it be Vietnam or Thailand or China or or uh, you know Japan or anywhere you know a traditional teacher representative. But that representative then is basically spreading this message within the context of uh, converts. And then now right. you have a lot of, of course, teachers who maybe studied overseas with these Buddhist masters, or you know the Buddhist masters came here and trained them, and so you know you have these huge Buddhist teachers who are then now passing on the tradition as Westerners, born and raised in this culture, um, right. and I, I think about the Islamic context and how you know in 1965 i believe that's when the immigration act passed yes. so that now yeah. all of a sudden non-europeans can come to america which right. means now for the first time really in in large numbers you have muslims immigrating from the majority muslim lands and this significantly alters uh, Islam and Sufism and the trajectories. And this brings up a lot of that tension where you say, okay, there was a lot of seekers who were kind of experiencing Islam within a, a context of their Americanness, which may or may not have looked a lot like traditional Islamic Sufism. Mm-hmm. And then that coming into tension with people coming with their, uh, you know, Immigrant uh, Islamic Sufi order practices, and saying, "Hey, that's not that; these don't line up." And so, I'm just curious about how you you would kind of reflect on the differences or similarities with the Buddhist community, <laughs> because I feel like uh, there's some communities, Sufi communities, which are very much, you know, American converts. And then there's right. others which are very much um, immigrant Sufism. And then there's increasingly, I would say, a lot where there's a mix.
1: That's right, yeah. And, and it's, there's so many interesting parallels there. And, and, and I think part of the way I think about that is, is these different approaches, these different centers. So, right, obviously in the Buddhist context, you think of something like a Zen center or a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center. And then you think of something like a Buddhist temple. Or a Buddhist church, as some of them are called in, in uh, Japanese communities. Um, but really, part of the way to, to think about how these centers function is, is I, I would argue that in some cases, in many cases, they're serving different needs. right? So if you think of um, the needs of um, a, an immigrant community to have a community center where they can get together with people who share their background and they can network and they can maintain and preserve community. Um, you know, they can engage with their traditions in a way that, um, connects them with, with home and they, they do that together. And so those centers are serving a very different need than like, you know, a Zen center where again, it's, it's for people who aren't so much questing for those things as they are for, for transformation and transcendence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, and then, and then of course you see, th- uh, places where those things come together. So maybe one thing that comes to mind within the Islamic context is, again, to go back to the Babu Mahayyadine Fellowship. And uh, myself and, and a colleague, Shoban Xavier, recently published an article on this, was uh, the shrine of Babu Mahayyadine is really cool in a way because it's, it's one of the first uh, Sufi shrines in, in North America. Where for, for many Muslims and Sufis, it's, it's believed that there is a Sufi saint buried there, Babu Mahidi. And this uh, shrine is, is located on uh, the Baba Mahedin Fellowship's uh, farm just outside of uh, Philadelphia. Beautiful site. I mean, I strongly encourage anybody who uh, can get there to go check it out. It's a very, very cool place. And uh, beautiful Mazar, beautiful uh, tomb shrine built um, for Baba Mahedin's body. And what's so cool about this is, is this shrine brings together... Uh, the, these various uh, elements, like we might call this sort of the convert uh, Sufis, the convert Muslims, and also immigrant Muslim communities. And the story of how they're brought together is quite cool as well. So, Bauma Haydn has, uh, first, and first of all, Bauma Haydin was a teacher who, who really did, I think, unify people. Um, you know, he, he was somebody who was actually invited in, to North America in part to help deal with racial tensions in, in Philadelphia um, you know, people there felt like we need somebody who's who's teaching, you know, oneness and, and bringing people together. And so right when Baba Mahadeen landed, you know, he had uh, African-American, he had, um, you know, white followers, he had uh, Jewish, uh, you know, go on down the, the, the list of people from various backgrounds were, were coming to be involved with, with his group. Um, but what's so interesting about his shrine now is that the people who built the shrine when he died were primarily uh, his his convert uh, followers, many of whom understood Sufism in in a what we might say relatively universalistic way. Some were, as I've described, quite devout Muslims, but some weren't. You know, some related to Baba more as, as a guru, as a spiritual teacher. Um, so they build the shrine, and and the shrine then becomes a space of, of meditation uh, and and prayer. Um, But what's so interesting is, at some point, there is a Gujarati American uh, who goes and visits the center and and has a a spiritual experience there, and for many Gujarati Muslims, um, making a pilgrimage to a Sufi shrine and then having a celebration there, you know, including basically things like a barbecue and a communal gathering, um, you know, having people come in and and singing religious songs, um, you know, sitting at the shrine and, and seeking the blessings of the saint, the the barakah of the saint, you know, that's a huge part of their understanding of Islam. And so he was thrilled to encounter this because he felt like, okay, great, now we can actually, you know, uh, replicate some of our uh, Indian Muslim practice here in in North America. So he starts emailing and phoning his family and friends, uh, you know, primarily, again, Gujarati Americans across the Eastern seaboard and and beyond. And so they start... uh, Having what was called the Gujarati family gathering, <laughs> and they, you know, by by within a few years of this discovery, there are hundreds of uh, Gujarati Americans, their their families um, coming to this shrine and holding traditional Indian Sufi celebrations there, bringing in Sufi teachers from different traditions from their cultural background to recite religious songs, and so you've got this fascinating confluence of of these these converts uh, who at first weren't really sure what to make of this. They thought, "Wow, what's happening at the shrine?" Um but they've they've kind of negotiated this the sharing of the space. Um and so I think that's one site where you see this very interesting um connection where you know people are, are using the site to preserve uh community and religious tradition, but in a way they're all united in their seeking of transcendence. You know, they're all they're all looking for some transcendence through the presence of, of the saints.
0: Yeah. yeah, that is fascinating. Well when I read the book I you know I had a joke in, in my mind because um, I've had the opportunity to sit with uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson okay. uh, multiple times and he wrote a book called Islam and the Black American, which is yeah. a, uh, an amazing book. And it really documents the um, trajectory really of mm-hmm. black people into Islam in the Americas and, you know, he talks about what he calls proto-Islamic movements, so the, the right. more, more science temple and the 5% nation of gods and earths and the, the, right. of course the nation of Islam being the largest and, you know, it's just very interesting a lot of the things he says and he, but he really talks about this idea of black p- protest religion and how it all, you know, comes right. out of this kind of like self-definition, vis-a-vis, you know, def, you know, whiteness versus blackness, and all this stuff, and 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 just you know, black protest religion having a certain its own kind of canon and its own foundations across the board, whether it's Islam or Christianity, or even you could probably tie in things like Rastafari and things right. of that nature. But I was laughing when I read your book because I was like, finally, someone's written Islam in the white American, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because, you know, I mean, this is, and I I think it's really fascinating, by the way, I've always reflected on this that like, uh, you know, of course, you mentioned the problem with the words quasi-Islamic, of course, that's kind of derogatory, but if we're going to use that in air quotes, you know... um, or proto-Islamic, where basically, if you have, within the black community, the, the mainstream to Islam is the nation of Islam and other organizations which, for the vast majority of quote-unquote orthodox Muslims, uh, the foundational principles are highly problematic. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, for most white Americans coming into Islam, the stream is through Sufism and often through Sufi movements or, or orders, which like, you know, in Ayat Khan, don't yeah. you know, or, or are taught or are practiced in ways that for orthodoxy or orthopraxy, quote-unquote again, are highly problematic, shall we say mm-hmm. and so I think it's just fascinating like, that these are yeah. the two streams and yet, you know what I mean um, but I'm glad you said that about Bawa, because that's really fascinating is that he, you know he really reached across the racial line. And one thing that when you were talking about Bawa and his, his tomb becoming this place of pilgrimage, I was reflecting on Malcolm X and that his tomb has also become a place of pilgrimage. And I know many groups of African American and Latino Sufi Muslims who go there and, of course, are praying for him and are venerating him and are reading Yasin and Fatiha for him in the same way that, like you say, that Sufi saints are visited all over the Muslim world. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the fascinating... And, and, you know, in their articulation of it, and they do it annually, and they'll say, you know, for them, Malcolm is a, is a Muslim Sufi saint. And the reason is is, is you know, because he... Connected, he liberated, he connected them with the African roots, which is the vast majority of African Muslims, of course, being Sufis, and so that 's oh. their ancestry and it 's really fascinating too, because I actually read something recently which says ninety two percent of Muslims in Senegal claim affiliation to a Sufi order, right, and right a huge percentage of the the, the enslaved Africans came from Senegal, and things of that nature, so I think it's really fascinating, and I'm glad that in your book you did talk about the Tijaniya because the Tijaniya yes. are very interesting in that, uh, especially the uh, you know through Ibrahim Nias in Senegal, uh, yes. that that branch is it's very and I, I've had the blessing of going to Senegal and spending time wow. there. Is it? it's like very African, and it's very unapologetically African, it's very you know amazing and beautiful and so, Mm -hmm. you know Sheikh Hassan Sise who started coming, I believe in the 90s to to America he had a profound effect on African Americans who saw this African Sufi Sheikh, who is you know, spiritual master and has millions of followers all over Africa and beyond, and I think that's fascinating how you highlighted this, this order that, I mean, you look at the Tijaniya they spread in America specifically amongst African-Americans. Now, I know white Americans and Asians and, and others that are, have become Tijani, but the mm-hmm. vast majority of them are African-Americans. And for, for those that I've talked to, you know, they've mentioned like, you know, it's for me, I need a black shake. Like, my sheikh has to be black, because for me, you know, it's about connecting with my ancestral. Like, I'm not going to substitute, like, a white person telling me, you know, what my religion is for an Arab person telling me. Like, I need, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do, I do. And uh, so I just think it's really fascinating. And, uh, yeah, those are just some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, and and I think what's cool about that is it, for me that, that makes me think of this this broader point that when you're looking at the different forms that something like Sufism is taking in North America I think what you're partly seeing is, is people's needs being, different needs being fulfilled you know, if you're a middle class white American who um, you know, is not getting what you need, you're not getting the spiritual juice that you need that uh, from from this sort of domestic local congregation of whatever background, so you go out on the spiritual quest for for transformation, you know, you, you have certain needs that that you're seeking to be fulfilled, and so you know you will find that there are certain Sufi teachings that that do that. Um, if you're an African American who's looking to connect with with your identity that has been you know obscured and, and repressed over the centuries, um, and and to connect with a sense of Africanness and spirituality, well, there are Sufi orders that can fulfill that need, right? If you're uh, an immigrant. Muslim who is trying to make your way in this uh, country and, and trying to at the same time connect with with who you are in your background in your community while well, there are Sufi orders that that can help you do that right and so I think one of the th- things that I found interesting talking to Sufi teachers was you know sometimes they would say look the reason why we teach this particular way is because our Sheikh told us look uh you know some people are going to need to learn it this way so that's why you should, you should do this, you know, it's, and, and they don't have a sense of this is for everyone. I mean, like uh, Llewellyn Von Lee is another example where he said, look, the reason why we, we have a very formless approach to Sufism, he said, there's no rituals of initiation. We have some very basic meditation practices, but it's, it's a, you know, almost as formless as you can get of an approach to the spiritual path. But he said, our teachers told us to teach it that way because it's going to work for some people. Mm. And he said other people teach it much more connected with ritual and tradition and, and Islamic life and practice, because that's going to work for some people. And he said, there's no problem here. You know, we're not saying that they're doing something wrong and, and we're doing something right. We're just we're just meeting different needs. And so I think that's a very interesting way to think about it is, is you know, teachers from the past essentially starting to orient different traditions to, to meet different needs. And so to me, that's that's great. You know, there's nothing problematic
0: in that. For sure. Yeah, man, I loved your book. And um, so Sufism in North America. At, what's the subtitle?
1: Yeah. So uh, Living Sufism in North America Between Tradition and Transformation.
0: So, yeah. Beautiful. You know. And people can get that anywhere, everywhere. Amazon. Take an yeah, over it's, the
1: world. it's available on Amazon. Uh, you can get it in now in uh, software. Cover So it's more around $30, which is great because I think initially when it came out, it was uh, hardcover. It was more like $80. Uh, you can get it on uh, Kindle for, I think, even cheaper than that. So, um, yeah, but I, I just want to say thanks for, for the invite. And it's it's an honor to uh, to be a part of uh, the, the work that you're doing. And I'm just, you know, really happy that you enjoyed the book.
0: So my pleasure, man. No, I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to... In whatever you're doing next, what are you doing next? You got any uh, research projects or anything like that? Yeah, actually, uh, a
1: couple things on the go. That um, one is a book that's going to be uh, an introductory text to Sufism, and that's written with my uh, former PhD supervisor, uh, Professor Mina Sharifi Funk. Um, we've got a book called "Unveiling Sufism: From Manhattan to Mecca," and. This is an introductory text that uh, we're taking a different approach in the sense that it starts with contemporary Sufism in North America. Uh, and then each chapter, it goes back through the historical uh, period. So the second chapter then deals with the colonial period, um, you know, looking at uh, people like uh, Abdul Qadr in uh, Algeria and his resistance against the French invasions. Um, and then, you know, moving back to the, the medieval period, classical Sufism, and then to the early Sufi tradition and its origins. And in, and in each historical era, we look at me- different manifestations of Sufism. So we have a section on uh, Sufi philosophy and doctrine. We have a section on uh, the arts, you know, the ways in which Sufism manifested artistically. We have a section on politics, the way that the Sufis of that period related to political powers and structures. Uh, and then, you know, some of the history. And so that book uh, we have complete, it's gonna be with uh, Equinox Press and that should be coming out uh, next year. And we, we hope it'll, it'll contribute to uh, kind of a, a rich, you know, three-dimensional take on, on Sufism. Uh, and then uh, there's one more project that I'm working on with Mina Sharifi-Funk and Shabana Xavier on contemporary Sufism, uh, looking at some of the patterns that we're seeing across the world with contemporary Sufi practice in terms of how Sufis are responding to anti-Sufi movements, which are quite powerful right now, um, the role of gender in Sufism across the world, how are women participating and leading uh, in, in Sufi traditions across the world, uh, and then, of course, the interface of Sufism and pop culture. So that book um, on contemporary Sufism uh, is, is with Rutledge, and uh, that's still being worked on, so that'll be coming out probably later 2017, I would think.
0: But MashaAllah. Nice. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I love the book and I love talking to you about it too. It's really uh, beautiful because, you know, it's, it's one of those books that is, is close to home. Like I felt like I love. was learning about myself and my own yeah, people yeah. I know and my own family, my own tribe and stuff like that. So yeah, man, beautiful. I loved it. And uh, I look forward to reading whatever you put out next.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, if the feels great to hear the positive feedback and uh like i said a real honor to to participate in your work and yeah look forward to uh, talking about uh, future projects so cool all right brother thanks for giving us your time hey thank you Peace. peace